This is Mike Montero. I'm Erica Hall. This is Larissa Berger. We're broadcasting from Mule Design Studio in beautiful North Beach, San Francisco. This is Voice of Design. sailors you are listening to the voice of design today we'll be kicking it off by talking about what is the job of a designer in this new and somewhat confusing and chaotic age historically designers have defined themselves and gathered together professionally based on the thing they were designing, you know, an architect designs buildings, an industrial designer designs objects, a software designer designs software, and now everything's an internet-enabled something, and many things need to be designed that have no presence in the physical world. And so the question is, you know, with all of these very complex, multidisciplinary, multimodal systems that people need to work together to design, what is the job of a designer and how do you know what kind of design you do? Even the role of a writer always had the medium in mind from the very beginning of the idea. There are speakers and there are writers and there are radio hosts. And there are television hosts. Yeah, screenwriters. All of these things. Everybody's like, what are you What are you writing for? What are you designing for? Everybody's jellies and somebody else's peanut butter. All right, so what's your definition of design? Why don't we start there? I would say design is the act of uh, making choices in order to achieve some goal. That sounds like something everybody does on a daily basis about 3,000 times. So is everybody a designer? Are you coming down on on the side of, of that? Yes and no. What I said was that everybody makes decisions like that every day. I think the difference between somebody who gets paid to do those things and somebody who doesn't get paid to do those things is that we have a certain skill set where we can do those things intentionally. I think intention and repeatability are two things that need to be included in there. Like the, I mean, that's the reason that people hire us to design things is because we can come up with solutions that ensure repeated success. Like any fool can trick you into putting a 24-pack of toilet paper into an Amazon shopping cart. We can come up with a process that gets people to do that over and over and over and over. Mm, yeah, I think the repeatability is huge. Because that's when you're really applying like systems thinking, right? right. It's not just a one-off. Right. And the intention is important because like anybody can mix blue and yellow together and uh, be delighted that they get green. But some people know how to mix blue and yellow together to, to get the right kind of green and to get different kinds of green. And they understand the meaning of green. Right. And I think so often people focus on that output the specific green and the tools that got to that green as opposed to realizing what was behind that tool. So when I first started working in design, 
um, I remember being really intimidated because all of my education had been in engineering and suddenly I showed up to this game design studio and I had to learn Photoshop and I had been trying to avoid having to learn Photoshop for a really long time. And it turns out you never needed to because it was on its way out. Exactly. And that didn't make being a designer. But at that point, at an internship, it felt like knowing Photoshop and being a designer were one and the same. I think equating design with tools is a, is a slippery, slippery slope. Equating it with people who know how to intentionally solve problems. So I've always defined it as design being the solution to a problem, the intentional solution to a problem within a set of constraints, mm -hmm. which is a definition that I've cobbled together from various sources, stealing a little bit from this person and that person until I had one that uh, I was comfortable with. Yeah. I remember when I joined, you gave that definition and that was actually very reassuring to me because that's not so far from the description of an engineer, right? Sure. And, you know, we could talk about the difference between an engineer and a designer for days, or we could just agree right now that <laughs> there isn't any and save everybody a lot of time. Here's something that I found really interesting. I went to this panel discussion a couple of days ago. Erica, our, our own Erica Hall here, two-time author, was up there. Yeah, so we were we were on this panel talking about content strategy and the organizing principle is the the definition. It was like we're going to get on this panel and talk about what is the definition yeah. of content strategy. And and oh my god, that's a conversation that's been going on for 10 years and is honestly boring at this point. But the thing that got me at this panel was that every content strategist up there talked about working with designers at some point. And then I have to, you know, I hand this to designers or I give this to designers or I go over and talk to the designers. And at one point I, I was like, wait a minute, what, what the hell are you? Aren't you designers? Especially when, and this is something that came up in your book, Conversational Design, which very brilliantly deals with a lot of these new tools that are coming out, like Amazon's Echo. What's the Apple one? Apple doesn't have one yet, right? They're weirdly I thought it just came out. This. They have one, but it's just Siri in a speaker. Yeah, it's Siri in a speaker. Thank yeah. you. And Google. So products like this, and this seems like the beginning of a whole class of products that we're going to see a lot more of. And these things are designed. These They are most definitely designed. And the people who I see having the biggest hand in products like that are content strategists or people who people who know how to put words together to achieve desired results. To me, that's a designer. Yeah. And words are the material of design. And that's something that, you know, I've, I've been talking about for a while. And, you know, I have my own like issues with content strategy as the name of a field because it is somewhat vague and also implies a container and these things like what's your container and let's focus on communication and meaning and just have that be part of design. And in fact, the leading part of design for all of these systems. And I think that uh, freaks a lot of people out because how do you, show your work? How do you establish your value? Everybody's always in this terrified, heightened state about their status and their role and their value in an organization. And I think defining the work as content strategy or a 
particular type of design, like a UX designer versus a UI designer versus a Man, all Some the, other kind of all designer. these people and, and they're, I got to show, I got to prove my value all the time to everybody. It's like, is there any other profession or set of professions on earth that's, that's, that's constantly attempting to, to prove that they have a right to collect the paycheck they were hired to collect? I mean, it's kind of mind boggling. Like, yeah. like but it's a new up. industry, right? You know, I, I think that's what's scary to people is that there's not a physical thing and things change very quickly. And, and so there's a lot, there's definitely a lot of fear, but honestly, I think what makes someone a designer is how often you ask why moving from engineering to design. And yes, we can argue about whether those are different, but I think that more of my days spent thinking about why then I was able to contribute when I had to build and work in sprints and um, get product out. Yeah, sprints is a whole uh, another topic, I think, for another day. The idea that like all of a sudden artwork should be in sprints, which I think comes out of the fact that nobody really gets up and moves around as part of their job anymore. So it's the sprint of the mind. I think the big thing that makes someone a designer is whether they ask why. That's a very good part of the whole equation. It's a very important part of the whole equation. It definitely needs to be in there. Yeah. But I think if we said you're only a designer, if you ask why, then I think about 77% of the people who call themselves designers wouldn't fall in that category. And that's fine because there should be trap doors under everybody who calls themselves a designer that magically open up when they don't pass any one of, of our tests. Well, that, yeah. yeah. And I think it's asking why in a productive <laughs> I'm, way. I'm such a dick. That's what's tough, right? It's like, you know, it's not asking why to, in a defensive manner or in a way that doesn't contribute to the goal of what you're working on. It, it's like productively asking why, right? Like feeling like just the framing of the problem even is part of your job. That's, what makes someone a designer? Because I remember like applying to colleges and having everyone say like, oh, well, it's all about solving hard problems. And I just couldn't help but think like, well, who's deciding on what hard problems are important to solve and why? That, that just never seemed to come up. It was like, oh no, the problem will be given to you and then you'll go work on it. And that's engineering school, right? And then you leave and it's kind of awesome because you can take one step back and say, well, is this a problem I want to solve? And I feel like technology as an industry maybe is starting to hit that point because they have to. It is really interesting to think about engineering and design because you look at Buckminster Fuller. He was a total, he came at everything from an engineering perspective, but he defined the problem that he wanted to solve as like, humanity being sustainable on the planet earth, right? Which is like the biggest, hardest problem. And he came at it uh, and designed solutions to aspects of the problem that he himself thought of, which are things like, oh, how do we provide efficient shelter for everyone? How do we create maps that give the people living on the planet a better idea about how the land mass is really distributed among the various continents, as opposed to uh, very skewed representations that lead to skewed decision making, right? He was all about like equity of. Bob Mr. Fuller was really about equity of spatial representation, right? And right. and the importance of that, and and the perspective he took 
um, which I think is really, really interesting since designers talk so much about empathy. He Mm. kind of took this anti-empathetic, anti-subjective perspective. Like he wouldn't talk about the sunrise or the sunset. He would, God, I can't remember his name. It was like the turning away or something like that. Cause he was, uh, he said, you can't call it a a sunset because it's not like the sun's going anywhere. It's like the planet is rotating. (laughs) And, and so he, he designed things with a lot of compassion, I think for all of humanity, but I'd say it's like not necessarily empathy. Right. And he was a complete weirdo who just kept his chronophile of his entire life. So I think keeping it weird is definitely part of the role of being a designer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think so, because if you're worried too much about conforming, I think that's where the consensus driven design comes in, because you're a lot more worried about social harmony in your work group than you are about really solving a problem. And you've got to be willing, like we were saying, to ask why. You're doing something, which I think is sometimes a sort of forbidden question. Because you're like, oh, we've all agreed that we're that this is an important thing to do. And if you question that, that's an antisocial act. So, Eric, at the beginning of this podcast, you mentioned that these were interesting, odd times for design. And I want to get back there a little bit. Like, what makes this period of time any more or less odd or interesting than any other period of time for design? I think because everything's a platypus now. (laughs) Go on. So many objects or artifacts or services are, it's not even like they're hybrids. It's that it's tough to decide which aspect of the product or service or artifact is the one that defines it and gives it identity. You look at something like the Amazon Echo Alexa that we talked about earlier, like what is that? What's its its primary essence? Is it a speaker that you can talk to? Is it actually like a, an aspect of the store that comes into your home? Is it just an incredibly expensive kitchen timer? Mm-hmm. You know, like there are so many uh, parts of it. Like, Like, is it The fact that it talks, is that the most important part? Is it the fact that it's connected to the cloud or it has some machine learning? It's it's an entity in your house. It's an entity. I mean, I'm not saying this is right and everything you were saying is wrong, but that's kind of how I think of her. And I think of it (laughs) as her because I call it by a woman's name. Right. And because we have a few of them spread out amongst the house... She's pretty much in whatever room I expect her to be in, because in any room I'm in, I can say, Alexa, what's going on? And I get a news report or Alexa, what's it like outside? And I get a weather report. The expectation that there's another entity in your house that is there whenever you need her. Mm. I mean, Mm. we could unpack the hell out of that. Totally. Like that's. Last time I checked, that was servitude. Alexa's a maid. Well, yeah, and in certain definitions. So then, so then, if you're going to be a person who designs, if your career is designing things like that, are you a domestic helper designer? Are you like a personality designer? I mean, that's a fantastic question. Is it like Pygmalion? Are you Henry Higgins? Like, oh, I 
I'm going to take this little robot out of the Covent Gardens and I'm going to teach it to talk like a lady. Like, yeah. are, are you designing companions? Are you, are you designing the perfect companion who also makes things show up at your doorstep? I mean, the, the whole point is that we don't know yet. And I think what's so weird about the speakers in particular is that they all have the same shape. Even the, the way you first interact with them is all kind of the same. But the model underneath is so different. I mean, if you think about like Google Home, that's an extension of Google. And that's a very different interaction from a smart speaker that's just playing music and maybe can do some extra things for you. But thinking about having like a Google search bar and every idiom of your interactive space from your phone to your computer to your like the glasses thing to a speaker is it's just like really intense. I want to rewind to the first thing that you said, mm -hmm. which was, I don't think we know yet. Yeah. Is that okay? As designers, and we said that designers come up with intentional solutions to problems. Is it okay that we don't know what this thing that we've made is going to do? I mean, in some ways that's kind of unavoidable, but Where's the point between have I been ethically responsible with what I've made and let's just see where it goes? Because I think that line is the most interesting line in design today because so much of the products that we used and loved throughout you know, our life were products that started out doing different things than they ended up doing. Sure. But they were not so open about being this like ongoing experiment in your house. Are they open about being an on, an ongoing experiment? I don't think they are open in the sense of like the average American, but I think that it doesn't take very much to realize that these companies are all kind of racing to figure out where the value is here. Are they collecting just samples to improve different AI algorithms? Are they, you know, there's there's like lots of stuff happening behind the scenes. Right. I mean, I know that we learn constantly or, or should be learning constantly from all of this shit that we make. But what happens when, you know, what happens when we learn that the platform we've built is being used by, you know, Nazis? Totally. What do we do then? Yeah. So, I mean, this is a, a combination of the indeterminacy as well as the this the data collection aspect of it, because it wasn't that long ago that we knew that certain things that we interacted with would collect data about us. You know, it's, this isn't just an Internet age thing. If you look, there are books about market research going way back, like the, the U.S. census like sold out Americans a long, long time ago. And but it's only when we've really started to interact with, you know, the Internet and social media platforms and these so-called like smart devices and the speakers that are listening to us that we we get a sense that there's a lot of it's like both sides of the channel seem fraught, like there's data being collected and then there's information being disseminated in a way that seems really harmful. And I think all of a sudden it feels like we had a moment where everything got so much more powerful and so much more complex that the the designers, however they describe their role going into it, that intention part, it feels like that, like maybe there was a goal, right? but it doesn't seem like the intentionally 
part uh, held. Yeah, the the creepy cutoff is what I'm going to call it. Uh, to me, seems really obvious, which is that you know when Google first started and there were just all these web pages and it was chaos and it was really hard to find things and there were all these different search engines. Google was totally creating value. They they realized something about the structure of the internet ahead of their competitors. And it was cool to be able to find something that you needed in this kind of endless library that had no system, right? But I think that as soon as something starts guessing what you might be looking for before you yourself know it, that's when it gets creepy. It was a creepy oven moment the other day. This is when you were fixing the oven? We're fixing the oven. And, we were and, looking up parts. Yeah, and didn't Google start serving up oven parts? Oh, it was Instagram. Like Instagram. I started getting vintage stove Instagram ads. Right. They showed up on in my Instagram. phone when I'd been using Chrome on my laptop to search so you, for uh, yeah. oven parts and things. And Chrome and Instagram are not run by the same company. No, but I, I'm sure I had Facebook running. Facebook is tracking me somehow on my right. on my laptop and it knew that Facebook was talking to Instagram. So you got shit tracking you that oh. you, you don't you don't even know about. Oh yeah, everything's tracking me. So I can't really so tell. So those things were all designed by somebody. Yeah. All of those all of those cookies that get dropped into your laptop to track mm-hmm. you. Those were intentionally designed by somebody at one of those companies to do exactly the thing that it's doing. Right, cuz one of the fundamental problems with these companies is that we're not clear on who the audience is. Are we designing for like my user experience or are we designing for the advertisers that they can stand to make money from? And and those are conflicting Mm -hmm. goals. The tough thing about prioritizing advertisers is that advertisers since the beginning of time have wanted to know what we want before we ourselves even know. I mean, that's not new. BMW runs ads so that you buy a BMW in 20 years. Right. What's new is finally having the technology to pull it off. And what's scary is that all of these things are being designed by people who seem to have absolutely no concept of history and what's happened before. Like when you talk about the idiots down in Silicon Valley that are like going on and on and on against regulation would do well to read the jungle. (laughs) Yeah. When you take a look at what a lack of regulation actually does to an industry and designers, most of all, have like a shitty, shitty knowledge of of our own history. Yeah, I think that's really true now. And that's probably one of the biggest complexities when you don't have a sense of the history of your field. Right. Because if you came out of graphic design. You could look back and say, oh, here's the heritage. Here's the history of graphic design. Here are my graphic design ancestors. But when you come at it and say, oh, we're designing things like these systems the world has never seen before, you don't know which path to look backwards on. And you and there's this mythology. And I think Silicon Valley kind of reinforces this mythology about inventing the future to say, oh, we're doing things that no one has ever done before. And so... There's no value in learning from history. And and this is also part of the cult of youth, right? To say, oh, if you get a founder out of high school who's wearing a hoodie, they're going to somehow be better at designing the future. And there was just a a study that came out about uh, entrepreneurs saying, well, actually, 
it turns out that these fresh face founders are usually a worse bet for the investor than somebody who's in their 30s or 40s <laughs> as far as judging return on investment. But there's this like cult of youth. There's this cult of inexperience. And I think there's a sense, and I think this is being abetted by design schools, where design schools aren't forward-looking enough. And so it's really easy to say, oh, that was industrial design, that was graphic design. Those aren't the fields of the future, so we have nothing to learn by looking backwards as opposed to being smarter about it and saying, what are the analogies from those fields? Design schools are t still teaching students how to make physical portfolios. <laughs> yeah, like pictures in a, in a black right. carrying case with a handle or your book that you, right. you take with you to job interviews and spread out and say, look at my beautiful picture. And I mean, well, you know, what scares me about this particular moment in design is that the amount of firepower available to us is so scary. We can now finally do all of the terrible things that we've been wanting to do to each other for a long time. Yeah. It's doable now. And we've got these tools that are being built by people who have no sense of history. I mean, I gave a talk the other day at the Design Museum in London, where during the Q&A, people were asking me like, hey, what's so bad about fascists? And that scares the hell out of me because we're, these tools are being built by, you know, people like, what's his name? Uh, uh, James Damore, the Google dude. Mr. Male Pride Idiot Boy Child. I mean, we're basically, I mean, we've handed him like the technological equivalent of an AR-15 that never runs out of ammo. The other aspect of that, again, it goes back to the intention. It's like we get a sense that, yeah, there's all this power, but no one's actually wielding it very well. And in some regard, like we're both being harmed by and being saved by uh, a certain amount of ineptitude, right? Because if you look at Amazon, you look at the, like, it's, okay, oh, these companies know me so well, but we see all this evidence of them not being very good. Like Amazon has more shopping data than anybody. And they're, a lot of what they do is really, really smartly designed. But, you know, the, the example I always use is if you buy a gift for a baby shower, then all of a sudden you're looking at baby gifts. If you buy, uh, you know, a like a clock radio. I don't know if you're traveling back to 19th the century. Fuck did you buy a clock radio? <laughs> I don't know. I was trying to think of a tangible object. But if you were to if you were to buy a specific type of object on Amazon, then all of a sudden all they're showing you are recommendations for others of that same object. And you think, wow, shouldn't you be showing me the next thing I should be buying after this? Right. Not just more of the same. And and these things are happening uh like the crazy YouTube videos of the, the, that are aimed at like children that are just less like pure hypnotic garbage that like YouTube didn't even really know about. And so there are all these things happening where it's either like the organizations seem very bad at using the data. It's like, why is yeah. advertising so bad? It's like advertising's bad. And yet terrible political campaigns and misinformation can use these channels. But you say like, okay, if, if businesses are trying to use these for legitimate business purposes and do that well, it seems like they're not doing it well because it, it's like advertising is cratering. 
advertising supported media are going to be having real problems. And so it seems like, like very few organizations, like you look at like Snapchat and they're bringing out, I was just reading, they're bringing out the snap spectacles again, which seems like something nobody wants. So advertising is cratering. Mm -hmm. We're having a horrible time. Yes. (laughs) Now those were the two, the two user groups that you mentioned earlier. Remember I said there was a third. Mm-hmm. So if those two are getting the shaft, right? what's the third? The rich white boys who run this whole shit, the people at the very top, the same people who build, who are now, and here's where we go into tinfoil territory, the same people who are obsessed with building rocket ships to get off this fucking planet. <laughs> now, the minute that somebody starts trying to design rocket ships to get off this planet while simultaneously trying to fuck the planet over, I start getting very, very worried because now I'm in a Blade Runner scenario where the characters in the movie are trying to, you know, every time they run into each other are explaining to each other, Hey, how come you didn't go off world? It's like, oh, I didn't invest in time. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it really is like these idiots believe that they can go off world and we're in tinfoil territory, aren't we? Yeah, I don't even think we're in tinfoil territory because this is because Elon Musk just put a car into space. I mean, yeah, that's people are doing these things that like. This is like me shooting my record collection into space. But I, I think this all goes back to actually what Eric was talking about earlier, which is the, the cult of youth. Because what's strange to me about all that data collection is definitely, yes, that it's not being used well and that it seems like it's more being used to actually settle internal arguments and internal fights. Like when you see things roll out, just like even in, you know, apps or just your daily kind of media diet, however you interact with the digital devices around you, stuff really sucks. And I I think it's because things are not getting designed. There are rooms where these decisions are being made. People don't want to fight with each other and they're letting the the data decide. I I went to this extremely creepy presentation by the people who do We Work and We Live, which is very confounding how these are really technology companies. They're real estate companies, but um, they collect all this data and the data that they collect is super creepy, right? Like they collect how often you go up the stairs in your apartment and like who lives near you and you, you like finish a meeting and then you rate the conference room, right? And that's how they collect data in order to make design decisions. They gave the example of this like super hideous wallpaper um, that was all like those Rorschach tests. Like like you didn't have to collect data to know that Rorschach wallpaper was maybe a little off-putting for a meeting room. But I think that what's strange, and Erica, you've said this before, it, it just feels like Data has become kind of the new science behind making the decisions we need to make. And it used to be, say, in the like Mad Men ad age, more psychology based. Yeah, we, we have. Uh, yeah, I think the thing that's most confounding is that we're, we know that all of these organizations are collecting all this data. And we know that, yeah, there are people who are getting richer because of the way that companies are being traded and sold and acquired, it seems like the the intention is not clear. And it seems like we keep seeing things that seem like bad ideas 
make it out into the world because even though the data is being collected, the right questions aren't being asked or the right research isn't being done to actually help people do things intentionally because because none of the stuff that's happening is necessary. You could design things that make money and are not terrible, <laughs> but it seems like it, it's so hard. It, it, yeah, it actually is hard. It's much easier to make money doing terrible things for a whole variety of reasons that could be a, a whole other show. And so I'd say that when we say, what's the job of a designer now? I'd say the job of a designer is to take a look at that exchange of value to say who's getting what from whom for delivering what product or what service or what information. And I think because designers have been so focused on, oh, this is my material or this is my artifact or this is my field, that makes it easy to avoid stepping back and looking at the whole system that you're a part of that I would say any designer, no matter what their field, you know, just like Buckminster Fuller came out of engineering and said, okay, I'm going to step back and use my intellectual faculties to look at the entire world. I think most people working in the design or engineering profession have that capacity, but just don't have the incentive because once you step back and take a look at things, then you incur some responsibility for it. Yeah. And I think that kind of explains why designers just take on these kind of ridiculous presumptions about the work that they do. Because for instance, like when did a designer's job become like manufacturing delight or oh, for fuck's sake, you know, but, but I think what I've happens, seen that. I've seen that. Yeah. yeah. I, th I think what happens is that companies start, you know, they, they hire a bunch of engineers and then they need a designer and then they're like, Oh, we know that we don't really get what you do, but we need to like really engage users and get them excited. And I think that designers of happiness. Yeah, exactly. Designers kind of don't want to cop to that responsibility. And so they they accept that. Yeah. Right. They take on they take on that framing because they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All I do is delight. All I do is polish. Yeah. The biggest problem. And this has been a problem for a long, long time. And it, it comes down to designers and confidence. Mm -hmm. Designers are absolutely responsible for the work that they do, but they don't have the confidence to fight for it. They spend so much time convincing other people that they belong in the room and honestly, way more time convincing themselves than they belong in the room that they end up never taking that step where they're taking the responsibility for the work that they create. And this is where, you know, to get on my pet bandwagon here for a second, this is where licensing comes into play. So I want to go back to what Larissa said about delight, because I think the really interesting part about that, because so many things are good when people think about them deeply and become terrible when people just take the surface concept. And I'd say with like play and delight, you look at um, at Stuart Butterfield, who's founded who founded a couple of really fantastic companies, Flickr and Slack. And both of those started out as games. And in fact, his first company, the creators of Flickr, the name of the company was Ludic Corp, which comes from the Latin root meaning play. But he took that very seriously at a very deep level. And that's why Slack works so well. 
because there was this playfulness about being in a room with your colleagues and being humans with each other that was really missing from, you know, using remote work and remote collaboration tools. And they, and he created this other game and they were able to take that and say, okay, for work, for like hanging out in chat rooms with your colleagues, in many ways, you know, using Slack from a feature perspective isn't necessarily different from other sort of group chat platforms, but because there was this humanity. So he reached down and, and passed like the delight of the surface. I think the reason that that often sucks is it's sort of the eye of the beholder thing. It's like, oh, what delights the designer? So it's this total self-indulgence thing. Or what delights people to believe that the designer like gets it yeah. <laughs> enough or is designy enough. <laughs> yeah. And so he went deep and he's like, well, what does it mean to like have a nice time being humans with other humans. But that was a, like a level of depth and thoughtfulness with the team with like, that has to do with like valuing humanity. And I think when you just say like, Oh, I'm going to create something delightful that comes out of ego and, and arrogance and just like using people as an excuse to make something self-indulgent. I think that's where it goes to a terrible place. So going to the the licensing, like, because it seems like what we're getting at is that designers need to think about things deeply and systematically and also need to have a certain, like there has to be a certain baseline of knowledge. And that's where I think the licensing and certification comes in. And I know some people have criticized this based on the fact that historically, these sorts of professional organizations or licensing bodies have been used to exclude people. And historically, when you say exclude people from a profession, it means exclude people who aren't white men. And so that's been the historical critique. But I think having some sort of certification means that you have to examine some amount of history some amount of like deeper principles or systems thinking or systems thinking or something just so that you don't because the idea I think about certification is that you can't just go do things with implications without satisfying some governing body that you accept your responsibility and have an understanding of those implications right because that's what we want to prevent are people going out there and saying it's kind of like it all comes back to ratatouille right Anybody could be a designer, but in order to be a designer professionally, you have to acknowledge. So maybe maybe the certification is really more of an acknowledgement than it is a barrier that you've got to, like something you've got to go over it's to like get in the profession. Yeah, it's more like, a, like signing onto a code. There's two parts to certification and licensing or whatever you want to call it. And I definitely, and I agree, there are definitely things that, we need to look at to make sure that this is done in the most equitable fashion possible. And it should not be an additional cost to anyone. And if anything, if anything, it should be a tool in helping to rectify how we've treated underserved people in the past. And I think it can do that. I think it has to do that. But one, we need to use it to make sure that the designers who are being tasked with handling incredibly complex problems in this complex day and age, actually know what the hell they're doing. It should scare the hell out of you that I could probably go get a job at Facebook right now working on their newsfeed because 
I'm totally unqualified to do something like that, but I could probably talk my way into it. The other thing that it does is, let's say I'm at a situation where I'm working at, uh, let's say some fictional shithole company, I'll just make up a name, Palantir. And I've been asked to, I don't know, fictional project, uh, design a database for monitoring immigrants so they can be deported later, which my fictional company Palantir would be fictionally making. And as a designer who knows what they're doing, I look at that project and say, oh, hell no, this ain't getting made. Not I'm not doing it. This ain't getting made. And let's say I take it to my boss and say, this ain't getting made. And they in turn fire me. So in the setup that we have now, what do I do when I get fired? I don't do shit. I mean, I go looking for another job. One, I go looking for another job. Two, the odds that I actually go to my boss and say, this ain't getting made, start getting cut down because I don't want to be unemployed. But imagine instead that I had the power of like a whole organization behind me who made sure that designers were doing this job right. And I went to my boss and said, this ain't getting made. And it wasn't me that they saw when I said that. It was the force of an organization that they were afraid of, that they pictured when I was telling them that. And they knew that if I wasn't going to build this, there's no other designer belonging to that organization who was going to build it either. Well, that's interesting because that gets to the difference between, say, a designer and a developer. Because when you say build it, I think that's an important distinction because you have to, in order to have a system like that, you have to say, okay, here are the the requirements of the job. Here are the skills of the job. Because a designer, you know, conceives of something, but doesn't necessarily build it. And so what's to stop uh, in that scenario? Like what's to stop the organization from just not firing the designer, but just saying like, okay, we'll just have like somebody else at our organization do this. Think of the the fights that we get into just mm-hmm. over like where to put an icon that don't even have like human rights violations yeah, <laughs> as being exactly. a part of the conflict. And those are still start, um, difficult fights to have. Yeah. To me, there's no difference between those two skill sets. Those two skill sets are rapidly merging together as mm-hmm. they should. And I mean, just to go on a little tangent here, I mean, how often do we complain about clients and and how they build silos? And all we've done with our industry is build stronger, higher silos. We're all part of the same thing. We're all doing the same thing. The more we work on this shit together, the better this shit gets. And what I'm talking about is an organization that has our back when we fight to do the right thing. Right. So the couple things that are, I think, complicated about that are, when we're talking about designing now versus designing in a simpler time, I would say the stuff we're working on, no, we still have this concept of an individual designer. And I'd say these things have to be designed by teams. And that's that's part of the reason why I think we feel so dissociated from our history is that our history is a history of individual named designers, even though I think in many cases it was like one guy has the name, but there are actual other people like in his atelier or whatever doing the work. That's a part of it. And then the other part is that who says what can or can't be 
designed, right? That's more like that's more regulation governing. So it might be the case that it's not about licensing the individual designers, but it's it's the equivalent of having a building code, which is slightly different. So you say like, oh, it's not that you can't make somebody create a thing. It's that the thing or the system has to meet certain standards. Fantastic. Right. Fantastic. Let's do that. There are constraints on the system, kind of yeah. like HIPAA for medical records, right? That's a, yeah. that's actually very valuable yeah. as a constraint. And it forces the industry. Mm-hmm. The industry is free to make whatever solutions they want, but they can't violate that. What I mentioned earlier, this is our Upton Sinclair moment. Mm-hmm. This is technology's Upton Sinclair moment. We have proved incapable of regulating ourselves. We've proved incapable of looking out for the best interests of the people who, oh my God, this is the first time this this is actually going to have worked as a phrase, consume our content. We've proved to be unethical, greedy pricks who will sell these people down the river to collect this golden data that we still have no fucking idea what to actually do with. So we just keep storing it and storing it and storing it mm-hmm. till at this point, planet Earth is 80% data which nobody is ever going to mine through. And instead of, I mean, because we're all screaming, you know, we're all riding electric scooters down down a giant hill towards Armageddon while screaming blockchain at each other. (laughs) Man, that actually describes my commute to work this morning. Yeah. Whenever we say, hey, we should like slow the fuck down and actually take a look at what we're building here and who's building it and who's not and who we're leaving out of all of these equations... I've honestly never gotten more hate than when I mentioned licensing designers online. (laughs) And my favorite, my favorite comment was, fuck you. It's like you want to make it harder for people to become designers. Yeah, you fucking nailed it, genius. That is exactly what I'm trying to do. So I think it's like if you look at uh, what it takes to get a, a driver's license, like I think that might be a good place to start because Everybody who can see, basically, I think that's about the only requirement. Like you've got to be able to see to be a driver. But anybody with the basic. That's a big one. Yeah, that's a big well, one. You got to be able to one. see and you actually also have to be literate because I've had the weird experience of taking the written test in three different states and the difficulty is very much used as a way to prevent immigrants from getting driver's licenses. Yep. You got to know your Lionels from your Richies. Your left and right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So a driver's license, that is weirdly our domestic documentation for being a citizen, right? Being a member, being a functional member of society and being able to drive a car uses the same piece of documentation, which is super weird. And I think it's going to seem weirder, right? You can get IDs. Yeah. I know a ton of people who live in big cities, who don't drive at all. I've never learned how to drive. I'd be interested in, in what percentage of people go to the DMV and in, in say New York city just to get ID cards. Right. Versus, yeah. You get a non-driving license ID. Right. But that's weird. Which is what I had. It's funny that they that call it a non-driving weird. license ID. Yeah. It's not right. just called an ID. It's called yeah. that. It's yeah. like in the name, you're not good at this. Yeah. Yeah. It's you like, can't do this to, thing. To be an American is also to be a driver. But anyway, so when it's you. A disability, yeah. not driving. <laughs> So it's a pretty basic test that like like millions and millions and millions of people 
past, but like part of the driver's education thing is you have to watch the legendary film Red Asphalt. Like this isn't a, a part of the driving test, but it is like a part of the high school education where you have to see the ramifications of poor choices, irresponsible choices as a driver. And so maybe we don't have to think about the licensing so much as we have to think about the driver's ed. And I think I think we need the equivalent of red asphalt for designers, right? We need the reel that shows all of the things that have gone wrong when people have made irresponsible design choices. At my high school, they used to leave a wrecked car that was from a drunk driver incident. They would leave that just like right outside so that you would pass by it and freak out every day. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. We were talking a little bit about responsibility earlier, and I think one of the reasons that data has become the the godhead of technology is because data frees people from having to make from responsibility for the choices they made. So I haven't decided we're doing this. The data decided we're doing this. Mm, right. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly why everybody is so much more enthusiastic about quantitative data rather than qualitative data, because the human intervention, even though there's human Correct. intervention in both, you can blame the quantitative stuff on the machine, even though it's like how you ask the questions, what data you sample, how you interpret it, all of these things are very human with qualitative data, you really have to look at it and acknowledge that there's a human interpretation. And by acknowledging your role in it, it makes you responsible. And because I want to end today's podcast, our pilot podcast on a positive note, that reminded me that, you know, the amount of anxiety that we're all going through on a daily basis here, I've been reduced to watching one thing on TV. The one thing I can stand to watch on TV anymore is RuPaul's Drag Race. It's so good. And there's one thing that RuPaul says at the end of every at the end of every season that really stuck with me. All season long, it, I'm paraphrasing now, all season long, I have taken opinions from the judges. I have taken opinions from online polls, but the final decision is mine. Like she makes that really clear every season before she picks her winner. The final decision is mine. And I think that's something that both tech and design need to understand. Everybody who's working on something bears a responsibility and that that responsibility is important and they cannot overlook it. The final decision is yours. Is this thing going to exist in the world? The final decision needs to be yours. Go ahead and take a look at the data. Be it qualitative, be it quantitative. Go ahead and get feedback from your coworkers. You absolutely should do all of those things. But at the end of the day, when you make that decision, you need to sign your name to it when it goes out into the world because your name is going to be attached to it and you need to be able to say, I made that decision. If it goes well, fantastic. If it goes badly, come to me. And if you can't love yourself, how the heck are you going to love anybody else? We're going to be back for another episode, right? Oh, yeah. And we're going to have guests. Oh, yeah. We are. Lots of Many guests. delightful guests coming up. <laughs> and there's a theme to this season because mm-hmm. we're doing this in seasons. We are doing this in seasons. And what is the theme of this season? The theme is, what is the job of a designer? This is season one a Voice of Design. This season's theme, what is the job of a designer. You have been listening. 
You have been listening to Voice of Design. My name is Mike Montero. Erica Hall. Larissa Berger. We've got Seven Morris here behind the controls doing a fantastic job making sure that we stay on point. Thank you for that, Seven. And until we meet again. This season, we're asking the question, what is the job of a designer? What is the job of a designer? Send your responses to us on Twitter at VOD underscore R-O-C-K-S Vodrocks. Or you can send us an email to VOD, V-O-D at MuleDesign.com. That was a really good conversation.